I want to take just a moment um, before we begin to update you on a couple of things. First, um, <laughs> we know the men are away on retreat this weekend, and uh, Sharon gave a beautiful announcement uh, for the women's retreat that's coming up. But I have to say, on a personal note, I cannot wait for the video commercials for the women's retreat. <laughs> you have to step it up, ladies. We want to see some, see how you sell it. <laughs> um, all kidding aside, uh, both great opportunities. I spoke briefly with Mike last night and uh, after their session, and it seems like it's been a, an awesome time for the men of our church as they go away together and spend this time growing closer. Um, I also want to update you on the Young at Heart that you heard so much about. Uh, we had an awesome time together last Friday night on the 11th. Our kickoff dinner was a great success. There were 51 people in attendance, um, and we're already planning um, to move into the future and things that we can do each and every month. There's an event planned for February and something planned for March, and we'll be, uh, through the announcements and through e-news and so on and so forth, we'll be updating you on things that are going on as uh, Young at Heart becomes a new and vital part of our ministry here at St. John's. So that's something that's very exciting, and... Um, I want you all to be praying for that and, and how we might turn this into something that's very special here. Um, now we get into today's topic. I want to begin by telling you about one of my favorite movies of all time, The Money Pit. I don't know if you're familiar with The Money Pit. Um, I was actually talking to uh, Jeff before we started this morning, and I don't know why I love it so much. Perhaps it's because I've lived it a little bit. Uh, in my life with our first house that we bought together. But uh, The Money Pit, starring Tom Hanks and Shelley Long, is a, a movie about a young couple who purchases the house of their dreams. It's absolutely beautiful, is it not? You can see the picture there. Um, gorgeous first home. Um, great curb appeal. Uh, the overall size of the house is incredible. Lots of room for a young family to grow. Um, and in the beginning of the movie, they meet the owner... And she's a widow who has no need for a house of this size any longer. She's oblivious to how to take care of a property of this size. So oblivious a fact that she's allegedly, she has no idea that the house is actually falling down around her. And so cosmetically, the house is stellar. But on the inside, the framework is weak. The electricity is antiquated. The plumbing carries more rust than water. And therefore, these pictures give you some idea of some of the things that are going on in the house. So an area rug covers a large hole in the floor on the second floor. Okay, look at the next one. Rotted wood beneath the bathtub, causing it to crash down to the first floor. Okay, and the last one, a staircase whose steps have creaked for so long that they finally just fall apart like a pile of toothpicks under Tom Hanks. So Tom and Shelley's characters move into this great house that should be what is a dream come true. But instead, they're blindsided by a nightmare that they just can't wake up from. That's what it means to be blindsided. It's when we get so caught up in something that we don't see what's coming. It... It has the, the beauty on the exterior, the curb, appear, the curb appeal that attracted them to purchase the house. But inside, 
the house was rotting away. What appeared to be good on the outside was really bad on the inside. And so the underlying theme that's running through this uh, blindsided series comes from the idea that Mike has said many times, the presence of external enemies are not the greatest threat to life. It's the internal battles that can take us down. So for all of the weather and all of the seasons that the outside of the house experienced, there was more damage that was being done on the inside. There was more work that needed to be done to the house in order to make it a dream home. It was flawed on the inside. It needed work to be brought up to code and to be livable. And so when we carry certain character traits, they can take on a life of their own and it becomes harder and harder to identify what really lies beneath the surface. On the first week of the series, we looked at pride and how the Israelites stopped fighting hard battles. They became too content with what they had. They stopped pursuing oneness as a people. A person with too much pride becomes convinced that they have it all figured out. And they're forgetting the one who really knows the ambitions of their heart. The cynic that we talked about last week can be sure that the world is nothing and has nothing of worth. They're forgetting about the one who brings hope for all of humanity. And the self-centered person can become so preoccupied by their own agenda There's no room for the one who calls us to live God-centered lives. You see, God didn't create a world to revolve around anyone other than himself. And so today, in Judges chapter 9, we meet Abimelech. Abimelech is the son of Gideon. And we learned that Gideon had much favor with the people and they wanted him to be king. But his words in chapter 8 were... I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. However, Abimelech really wanted to be king. And so in chapter 9, we read his story. And so let's begin. Judges 9, starting with the first verse. Abimelech, son of Jerobel, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem... And said to them, and to all of his mother's clan, Ask all of the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all seventy of Jerobel's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. So let's stop for a moment. If we backtrack a little, we find that Gideon's death brings more idol worshiping and a complete turnaround of the Israelites. As they completely forget about God delivering them from their enemies. And in addition, the people turned their backs on Gideon's family, forgetting all he had done for them. Abimelech takes advantage of this opportunity to gain control. One other side note, in verse 1, Jeroboam is Gideon. So they're one and the same. Um, Gideon destroyed the town's altar to Baal, so his father Joash gave him the byname Jeroboam, which means let Baal contend with him. Remember we learned last week that Gideon was also known as the chopper because he took down these um, idols. And so he took down the the Baal altar and it was his father's way of defending his actions on destroying this idol because of its worthlessness. And so if Baal truly were a god, then he would have 
to contend with Gideon. That's how he got Jeroboam. So Abimelech begins his campaign with family and rallies them to his side. So we continue on with verse 3. When the brothers repeated all of this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of baal Barith, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. When Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding, then all of the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. And so, so far we see that with support, he collects the funds needed to gather a band of reckless adventurers. So pretty quickly in his reign, he has symbolically defended idolatry by becoming an heir of sorts of the Baal temple treasury. And then he hires thugs to kill his brothers who might be considered a threat to his leadership. Uh, some quick family background here. <laughs> uh, there's Gideon's family in Ophrah, and then there's Abimelech's mother's family in Shechem, because Abimelech was born out of the relationship between Gideon and one of his concubines. Hence the reason there's 70 sons. And before we go any further, let's just take a moment to look at this definition of what it means to be self-centered. Preoccupied with oneself and one's affairs. Characteristics synonymous with self-centeredness are egotistic, self-regarding, self-absorbed, self-seeking, self-serving, vain, and narcissistic. <laughs> Abimelech is not considering the words of his father's when his father said it would be the Lord who would rule and reign. Abimelech is taking advantage of a, a weak nation looking anywhere for leadership of any kind. Abimelech sees an opportunity for personal advancement and self-promotion. And very quickly, we see he will stop at nothing to get what he wants, including murder. Now, we don't know what exactly it was that fueled Abimelech's uh, hunger for power. But consider the brothers that he killed. They supported their father Gideon in wanting the Lord to be the ruler over them. And so Abimelech rises with a, a very different mindset. And the, or, the original sin that exists in all of us has taken hold of him and driven him to do evil in the sight of God. You see, it's because of our sinful nature that we need to put our emotions and our thoughts in check when our eyes turn away from God and start thinking about our own ambitions, thoughts, and desires. Self-centeredness can start with something small and turn into something much bigger. Maybe we aren't looking to conquer countries and eliminate people like Abimelech, but what happens when we start judging others? And finding ourselves critical of others and begin to believe that you're the only one that knows what's right. Your idea is the best. You knew it all along. We all know people like that. All of that started somewhere. Life's circumstances and the world in which we live has shaped part of our inner thoughts. So if we don't keep Christ at the center of our lives, self 
can easily slip in and begin to tear us down one bad thought and eventually one sin at a time. And so we continue on in Judges with Abimelech's story at verse 7. Now stay with me here. This is a big, big moment. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, Be our king. But the olive tree answered, Should I give up my oil by which gods and men are honored to hold sway over the trees? Next the tree said to the fig tree, Come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit, so good and sweet, to hold sway over the trees? And then the tree said to the vine, Come and be our king. But the vine answered, Should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and men, to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees came to the thorn bush. Come and be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Have you acted honorably and in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jeroboam and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? Remember that my father fought for you and risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian. But today you have revolted against my father's family. You have murdered his 70 sons on a single stone and have made Abimelech, the son of his female slave, king over the citizens of Shechem because he is related to you. So have you acted honorably and in good faith toward Jeroboam and his family today? If you have, may Abimelech be your joy and may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. The one brother who escaped execution uses a parable to explain to the people of Shechem the kind of leadership that they're going to find in Abimelech. Jotham uses the analogy of the three trees, showing the olive, fig, and vine are all trees with value. But the bramble is thorny and doesn't do very much good. The bramble even goes on, the way the parable is told, to invite others to find shelter and shade. Now, bramble is more like a bush, and it really offers nothing in the way of either shelter or shade. And so in the end, Jotham issues the warning, if you've acted honorably and in good faith in choosing this ruler, then may he bring joy. But if you have not there will be consequences. And so the remainder of this chapter in Judges is all that's recorded of the reign of Abimelech because it was short, brutal, and barbaric. Those who did not agree with him were put to death. There were battles and even a massacre where he and his men trapped uh, a thousand people in, in the tower of Shechem and burned them alive. And his reign was brought to an end when a woman dropped a large stone on his head. Now you have to chuckle at this part of the story because the stone didn't finish the job. While Abimelech was still conscious, he asked one of his guards 
to run their sword through him because he didn't want it to be known that a woman killed him. The funny part is, here we are many, many years later reading about how a woman killed Abimelech. So it didn't work, Abimelech. <laughs> we all know the truth. So what do, what do we learn? What does this part of Abimelech's story teach us about self-centeredness? Well, first, self-centeredness, uh, self-centered people <clears throat> give more glory to themselves than to God. Abimelech was a self-promoter. In verse 2, we read his campaign slogan, which is better for you to have 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you or just one man? And take note, it was no one else's idea that he should be king. The concept of his leadership was self-driven, and he was looking to become number one all on his own. There were no meetings with friends or family or other Israelites who came and suggested that he lead them after his father's death. And again, we're reminded, Gideon had the exact opposite in mind when he warned the people to stay away from such leaders. You ever heard the story of the, the lion asking the other animals in the jungle who should be king? He says, who is the king of the jungle? And he asks the monkey, the zebra, and the turtle. And all of them say the same thing. Well, you, Mr. Lion, you should be king of the jungle. And then he comes across the elephant, and he asks the elephant, who is the king of the jungle? And the elephant takes his trunk, and he wraps it around the lion's tail, and he swings him in the air several times, and he slaps him into a mud hole, and he slams him against a tree. And when the lion finally comes to, he looks at the elephant and he says, just because you don't know the answer doesn't mean you should get upset. <laughs> it was all about Abimelech. He didn't need anyone else or the affirmation of anyone else. So when things went his way, there's no reason to believe that God had anything to do with it. And you know what? He was right. Because it, it wasn't from God and it was doomed to fail from the start. We read in James 3, 13 and 16. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. How does that apply to us? Am I suggesting that, that everything done without giving glory to God is evil? You know, a disciplined prayer and devotion life is not easy. And many Christians struggle with balancing a busy life and a life of prayer and devotion. I thought when I got this position that would be easier. I was wrong. But we struggle to be disciplined in our faith. Why would it be any easier to say that we consistently give God the glory for who and where we are today? You see, it's easy to say that we give God glory, but take stock of how that really plays out in your life. Thank you, God, for the blessings of this day, for the food that you've given us to eat, for the roof over our heads, for my position at work. That's not to say that we shouldn't take pride and receive kudos for what we do, but we need to remain rooted in God not only for the work he is currently doing in our lives, but for what he's going to do, his plans for us in the future. Hear these words from John chapter 15. 
familiar verse. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So give God the glory for the things that he has done and keep him in the center of your life. The second thing that we learn from Abimelech is that self-centered people are outside of God's plan. Abimelech is a little bit of an extreme example here, but his actions demonstrate what happens when a heart becomes hardened because of selfish ambition. Abimelech's actions demonstrate what happens when we allow our original sin to take over and cloud our judgment. Abimelech's actions become a clear-cut choice between God's plan and his own plan. In fact, there's a little portion in verse 6 that we just kind of skimmed over where Abimelech is crowned king beside a tree. This same tree is where Joshua laid a copy of the law of God and made a covenant with the people. Hear this quick story from Joshua 24. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been, give, after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. And on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, where Abimelech's story takes place, he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. And then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. Abimelech is standing right there next to this covenant when he's crowned king. The law was there to read, but Israel neither chose to read it or follow it. You see, it's a dangerous place to be in when we find ourselves making decisions, perhaps even major life decisions, without seeking God first, plowing head-on with sudden moves, job opportunities, choosing the right spouse, choosing which college to go to, how to handle our retirement funds. They could become a slippery slope if we make decisions based solely on personal needs, ambitions, and desires. But when we stay in God, when we stay rooted in God, He gives us the spirit of discernment and the ability to make wise choices and stay grounded in his plan for our lives. Because of our original sin, we can get caught in this false thinking. You might be convinced that uh, God wants you to be happy and live a full life, and he wants you to get there any way that you can. You might get caught up in providing for your family, that you compromise your faith and make decisions based on knee-jerk reactions. And you might be so convinced that immorality now and then is okay if it helps keep you happy. All of these things are self-seeking, self-gratifying, and ultimately it leads to sin. And then 
We are justifying the sin in our lives and not allowing God's plan to do a work and be glorified through us. I couldn't help but think about the study that we're doing right now. Uh, I am a church member while I was focusing on this part of today's message. We're learning about the traits of being a productive church member. In the first two chapters, we talked about the functioning member and how uh, we each play a part. And then we talked about being a unified member and how important it is to love one another and stay clear of gossip and the things that tear down relationships and the unity within the church. Self-centered people cannot be productive members of the church. Self-ambitious, selfish ambition is non-productive in a church environment because we've been called to be, to be his church, producing ministry that's glorifying to him, witnessing to others who are lost in sin and the world and bringing them into a relationship with him. He is the object of our affection. He is the object of our worship. And he is the center of all of our plans. Self-centered church members are not centered are not concerned about doing what's best for the church if they're not in line with God's plan for the church, both local and global. To settle something that we joke about all the time, I had to mention this. There's nothing wrong with having a favorite pew or row to sit in. The problem comes when you don't let anybody else sit there. The author of the book, I am a church member makes the comparison between a church membership and a country club membership. In a country club, you pay dues and you expect certain services, perks, and luxuries. And if you have a similar view of the church, then you give your tithes and offerings and you expect everything to be done a certain way that lines up with your own likes and dislikes. That's self-centered thinking. That's not to say that the leadership of the church doesn't want to hear your ideas and your concerns. But when you are assessing the successes of the church and the areas where you think it falls short, make certain that your concerns are valid and not self-serving. A few years ago, I was interviewed by a student, and he asked me what I thought was the main issue of concern in our country. And my answer was, we are self-centered. Too many people want to make sure that their voices are heard and their agendas are addressed. And as Christians, we need to be careful before we take sides. Because when the world confuses our judgment and seeks to convince us of what is right and wrong, there is only one authority, and it's the God-breathed scriptures that are found in the Bible. Anything else is self-motivated, self-absorbing, and ultimately self-destructive. And if there's any question about the, rel the relativity, or the, sorry, the relevance of the scriptures today, just look at what's happening to the people in Judges when they continually turn their back on God and get caught up in what's popular at the time. They followed the dominant voice, and when it wasn't God's, it failed. The third thing we learn from Abimelech, self-centered people have no reason to put their trust in God because they only trust themselves. When Abimelech came across nonconformists and those who didn't see things the way he did, he did away with them. 
He had no value for people who thought opposite from him. Now, again, we might not totally eliminate people from our lives, but when we become so self-motivated and self-absorbed, we naturally push others out. We create a little world around us where the opinion of others doesn't matter. The thoughts, ideas, and plans of others just don't align with our own thinking. So either you pull back and you alienate yourself, or you push them away. So when you find yourself frustrated with people, frustrated by day-to-day conversations and situations, ask yourself this question. Am I trusting God to help me find the answers and make the right choices? Have you ever found trusting God hard? We've all been there. Be honest. At one time or another, when you were totally relying on God, it may have been difficult. Moments when things don't seem to make sense when you couldn't possibly see how anything would work out without you getting involved. For me, it's finances, and I know I've shared that with you before. But when it comes to money, if it doesn't add up, I feel like I've done something wrong and I need to fix it. And so suddenly, I'm not, God isn't involved at all because I assume that the only way that the problem can get fixed is if I jump in. Suddenly, I'm not trusting God. I'm, not, I'm trusting that whatever it is that I do is going to make the problem go away. And inevitably, I am wrong because I couldn't see the big picture. But we have a big God. And he not only sees the picture, but he planned it out. And we need only put our trust in him and not our own selfish self. So I want to just take a moment as we wrap things up here to make this practical. Mike has been referencing the Carrie Newhoff book, Didn't See It Coming. Carrie doesn't address self-centeredness directly, but he points our self-centeredness, he points out our self-centeredness traits and the pitfalls on focus on self. When we choose a self-centered lifestyle, our hearts can become hardened and we no longer are living God-centered lives, much like the Israelites in the book of Rotating Judges. In particular, the heart of Abimelech who was chasing his own agenda and shutting out the counsel and example of others. Corey mentions these characteristics of a hardened heart. First, a superior attitude towards others. What standards are you used to measure up the people around you? Does it matter what people look like? The type or size of home that they live in? The stores where they shop? I won't mention any specifics, but you know, you shop in certain stores or you stay away from certain stores because... You're not crazy about the clientele of certain retail chains. Ultimately, this leads to a feeling of superiority and the mindset of being superior to others. Second, a judgmental attitude towards others. As believers, we'll never have a leg to stand on, meaning we'll never be able to have integrity in our witness if we choose to judge the people around us. It isn't our place to judge sinners or call people out for sin don't even realize what sin is. On the other hand, when we find ourselves in a relationship with a brother or sister in Christ, and they have sin in their lives, we are called to be accountable to one another, and with a loving heart, help them identify the sin and support them in removing it. A self-centered person will judge all based on a criteria relative to their own self-made, self-proclaimed standard. Thirdly, a feeling of being unaccountable to anyone. As spouses, we're accountable to our mate. 
As parents, we're accountable to our children. As siblings, sons, daughters, we're accountable to our families. And as fellow believers, we're accountable to one another. As Christians, we're accountable to God and the scriptures. And when we lose the heart of accountability, we don't see the reason to answer to any, for anything that we do. And when we really get self-centered, we even take scripture that says that what we're doing is wrong and suggest somehow it doesn't apply to our situation. Fourth, we isolate ourselves from others. Self-centered people live on an island. <laughs> they really cannot exist well with others because they don't allow others to be influential in their lives. In a sense, they build their own kingdom, created by them, ruled by them, and ultimately destroyed by them. Self-centeredness can blindside us because it creeps into our lives without us noticing. Now, all of us at one time or another have probably taken a selfish view of life. You ever felt like you owe something to yourself? I know for me, it's at the end of musical season. From January through March, we're heavy into rehearsals at the school for the musical. And at the end of that time, I'm exhausted. And there's always that one day when I feel like if I stay in bed and choose not to go to work, I deserve it. I mean, why should anyone else question me for wanting a little time to myself? I've given so much of myself over the past few months. I deserve it. And so I go to my happy place, Ocean City. I go to Uncle Bill's for breakfast, spend a little bit of time walking on the boardwalk, and I go to Mango and Mango's for lunch. <laughs> One time I spent so much time in conversation with somebody at Uncle Bill's, I cut out the walk and I went right to Mango and Mango's. <laughs> with all that said, I have to say I've experienced a lot of blessing in that time. And so <laughs> I got to believe that that was all part of God's plan somehow. Self-centeredness and gluttony at its finest. I, I don't know. <clears throat> Self-centeredness becomes sin when it leads to complete devotion to self without considering the needs of others. Nick Vegesic is an Australian evangelist who was born with Tetra Amelia syndrome. He has no arms or legs. And in his book, Unstoppable, Incredible Faith in Action, he wrote, you and I were put on this earth to serve something greater than our own interests. When our focus becomes self-centered instead of God-centered, we lose our greatest source of power. Our God-given talents are meant to benefit others. When we use them for the greater purpose, we put faith into action to fulfill his plan for us. We make a difference in this world that helps prepare us for the next. Now I'm going to give you a spoiler alert if you've never seen The Money Pit. We find ourselves at the end of the movie seeing the previous owner making another sale. You see, she's a con artist. She sold the house for cash, knowing full well what was going on on the inside of the house. With blind eyes, a young couple was taken by the schemes of a deceiver. This morning, I'm here to tell you that Satan is our con artist. And he seeks to destroy us from the inside out if we don't guard our hearts and live God-centered lives seeking after his rule and his reign. 
The underlying story of Judges is tragic and can be downright depressing. The endless cycle of idolatry, bad leadership, being rescued and then turning their backs away from God again and again is monotonous. And Mike mentioned last week that the summary is found in Judges 21-25 when it says, In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed was right in their own eyes. Well, the hope for us this morning is found in the King of Kings. We are called to center our lives on him. For all of the brokenness we see in Judges, we see a great hope in the coming of a kingdom that's ruled by God and God alone. No earthly foe can defeat him. No demon can unseat him. And without him, we can do nothing. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we yield to you this morning for direction, <clears throat> for guidance in the day-to-day, -day, for grace in our shortcomings, and for protection from the enemy. Convict us to step back and strive to live lives with less of us and more of you. Convict us to live God-centered lives, seeking you in all things, in all seasons of life. Lord, you know our weaknesses and you know our gifts. This morning I pray that you would reveal to each of us what you would have us do with what, you've, what we have been given and that what we might walk completely aligned with you, that we might experience the overflow of blessing, and that you would be glorified through all of it. Thank you, Lord God, for thinking more of us than yourself when you gave your son so that we might live. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.